This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well hey Anchor Church, Matt here, one of the pastors here at Anchor Church and it is so good that you've decided to join us for Church Online this morning. Whether you are watching from Anchor City or Anchor Southwest, we want you to know that we love you guys, we miss you. Uh, we cannot wait to be back together in person. Uh, we're super thankful for the opportunity to be able to film uh, these messages for you. I don't know if you realize this is probably a message predominantly for our Anchor City people, but right now this set is uh, the Anchor Southwest location at Mortdale Oatley Baptist Church. And we are super thankful for their generosity to be able to use this space. So thankful for uh, the Southwest crew to be able to film here. Uh, and for Mortdale Oatley and their generosity, this space um, has allowed us to do this, which we wouldn't have been able to do if we didn't have a venue to meet in. So super thankful for that. Well, hey, we're going to dive straight into Exodus chapter 14 this morning. So please join me as I pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who rescues, that you saves, that you are a deliverer. God, we pray as we look at a really familiar passage this morning, we ask that you'd help us to see who you are and what you have done with fresh eyes this morning. God, we know that you work in ways that we often cannot perceive and fully understand. Now, I pray that every single person who's watching this this morning, that you would move all of us a step closer to deeper faith and trust in you. And I ask this in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, amen, 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 across every house in Sydney, amen. I don't know if you're um, familiar with that verse from Isaiah 55 where God says to his people, he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And how true that is, and it is as true for our lives as it is for the events that are happening here in Exodus chapter 14. You know, those moments in life, we just think, God, what, what is happening? What are you doing? Why are things playing out the way that they play out like this? Well, Exodus 14 is one of those moments for God's people. But before we jump into the text, we just need to rewind a little bit and go back to Exodus chapter 6 and remind ourselves of the promises that God gave his people. Because there are four things, four promises that he made to his people, and they, they are these. The first is he promised to bring them out of the yoke of slavery, to deliver them from the, the harsh treatment and slavery of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Secondly, he promised to redeem them with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And we, we saw that last week, the 10 pandemics, the 10 plagues uh, that God judged Pharaoh and uh, Pharaoh's gods with. Thirdly, he says, I will take you and you will be my people and I will be your God. He's committing himself to Israel, a covenant commitment, a relationship that he, he would know them, that they would know him as their intimate God, Yahweh. And then finally, and most importantly for our passage here this morning, he says that he will bring them into the land that he swore to give their forefathers, the land of Canaan. Now that's really, really crucial for us because that's a promise that God has made God's people. We come all the way to Exodus chapter 12 where we were last week. We saw the, the culmination of the 10 pandemics with that last and most brutal one, the, the plague of the firstborn. As Israel painted blood on the, the doorposts of its house and the angel of death passed over every Israelite house and spared every firstborn and yet the house of every Egyptian, the firstborn, died. 
Now, at that point, Pharaoh says enough is enough. He lets Israel go. He sends them off to go and worship their God in the wilderness. And Israel leaves. They flee. They take their unleavened bread. They take their possessions, their cattle, their herds, their flocks, their children, everything. They plunder the Egyptians. They take their goods and they flee. And the events of Exodus chapter 14 occur as they begin to walk around the desert and just before they cross over the Red Sea on their journey towards the promised land. This event is called the Great Liberation, or some have actually called this the 11th plague, the 11th judgment on Pharaoh. Whatever you want to call it, it is a staggering miracle, one of the, the pinnacles of the Bible's story. If the Bible has multiple high points, the Exodus would have to be one of the highest. Uh, you hear echoes of the Exodus through the Psalms and throughout Isaiah and all throughout the Old Testament pointing back to this moment in Israel's history. Now, before we dive into the text, some of you are sitting there this morning thinking, come on, can we really believe that, you know, all of these people were slaves in Egypt and that God parted the sea and they walked through on dry land and then all of Pharaoh's army died? Like, how do we know this is actually true? Is it actual historical fact? And that's a whole nother sermon for itself. But thankfully, John Dixon has recorded a podcast on his podcast called Undeceptions. Uh, and he, in that, he interviews the eminent Old Testament professor, Professor Hoffmeyer, about exactly that question. So I'd encourage you guys, uh, we'll share links with that on our platforms. I'd encourage you guys, if that's your burning question, then go and spend some time with John Dixon this week. But as we look at this narrative here, this great liberation, I want to I tackle this passage from a couple of angles. And I want to tackle it from the question of the three puzzling commands that God gives his people. Three directions, three things that he asks them to do that in the moment think, what is happening here, God? What are you doing? And the first command that God gives his people that is puzzling is the command to turn back. Have a look at what it says here in verse 2. He says this, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. Now, we don't particularly know where these geographical locations are. Um, it's very uncertain where they are. Um, but what we do know about the topography and geography of the land from both this narrative and, and also from other passages in the Old Testament is that Israel are, are hemmed in, right? They're boxed in. They're cornered in. On one side, there is this location, Pi-Hahiroth. On the other side is Migdol. In front of them is the Red Sea, and behind them is the path back to Egypt and hot on their heels, Pharaoh and his army. What is clear is that Israel is cornered. They're stuck. They're, they're in a cul-de-sac. There's no way out. And the question is, why did they turn back? Why have they gone this direction? And I want to suggest to you that it is not by mistake. Have a look at what um, it is written in Exodus 13, verse 17 to 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road through the Philistine country, though that way was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. God literally says to the people, hey, we're not going to go the quick way. We're going the long way. We're going the scenic route this time. We're going the long way around. And the result of that is that Israel is now trapped. They're cornered. They're stuck. They're in a cul-de-sac and they have no way out. 
You know, when you find yourself in that moment, you're like, God, it just, just doesn't make sense why you've sent me this route. It doesn't make sense why my life has played out this way. It doesn't make sense why I've landed in this job. It doesn't make sense why I'm, I'm in this part of the world in this time. And we begin to question the decisions that God has made on our behalf. Be that uh, you know, a gut-wrenching lesson of dependence that's born fruit in your life, but it came by the path of suffering and it came by the root of pain and it came by the journey of disappointment. And you think to yourself, God, you know what, if I was in control, I probably would have gone a different route. I would have allowed things to play out a little differently. How do you respond in those moments of life? Well, I'll tell you how Israel responds. Have a look at their response in verse 11. This is what it says. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? They're complaining to Moses here. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now you detect a bit of a hint of sarcasm here at the very least in these verses because what is Israel, sorry, what is Egypt known for? If anything, what are they known for? What are they famous for? They're famous for very large, elaborate tombs, pyramids, burial processes. That's their jam, right? Israel, uh, Egypt, Egyptians preparing themselves for the next life. And so Israel begins to complain and whine and whinge to Moses with this sarcastic, were there no graves? Of course we could have died there. Why have you brought us out to die here? Then they say to him, didn't we say, leave us in slavery? Now let's just fact check that for a moment. Is that really what Israel said to Moses? Let's go back to uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, where it says this. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything that the Lord had said to Moses, the whole plan, the whole plan of deliverance, the whole plan of, of God's mighty hand and deeds of judgment. They told them everything. And Moses also performed the signs before the people and what they believed. And when they'd heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Reminds me very much of uh, you know, a child who wants to go to the beach and try their new boogie board, but the first wave they get dumped on, they're like, I never want to do this again. Or you know, ride their brand new bike, and when they fall off, they're like, I told you I didn't want a bike for Christmas. It's kind of like that reaction from Israel. But if we're fair, I guess we can feel somewhat sympathetic to them. I mean, they're trapped. They're staring death in the face. And they've left with this seeming, seeming choice between death on one hand, captivity on the other, slavery, or perhaps both. In 1931, uh, the singer and songwriter Ted Colliher, uh, I don't even know how he pronounced his name. Anyway, Ted, he wrote a song, and the title of this, the song's about Israel's story here, and the title of the song is called Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea. Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea. Now, heaps of people have covered his song, including famously Paul McCartney. And it's become a bit of a cultural euphemism for being stuck, uh, for being stuck between a rock and a hard place, for being caught in a conundrum. Israel has no way out. They can't go to the left. They can't go to the right. They can't go forwards. They're trapped by the breakers of the Red Sea. They can't go backwards because 
Egypt is bearing down on them. And they see only the choice between death and slavery. And in their minds, they would prefer slavery. They say we would rather live as captives, as slaves under Pharaoh, than die in freedom. But the thing is, God always has a third option. Where there is often no way, God makes a way. You see, with God, it's never over. With God, we're never narrowed down to just two terrible options like that between death and slavery. No, with God, there is salvation. And God will act. Moses promises, he says to Israel, God will act for his glory. So the first puzzling question God says is turn around. The second, even more staggering question that God says, or staggering, puzzling command is be still. Have a look at what it says in verse 13. When Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord, and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You need only to be still. Now, I don't know what image kind of comes to mind when you see that, um, you know, that, that or you hear that. And, and for me, the kind of image that comes to mind at the moment is that, um, that ad on TV, the BWS ad, I don't know if anyone knows that, you know, before convenience BWS ad, King Arthur's there, he's trying to pull the, the, rock, the, the sword out of the rock and the, the local leaders come and they say, oh, Arthur, it's a great day. Why don't you go get, get us some drinks from the local? And Arthur kind of looks at them with his stunned face and he says, drinks? And that's kind of, I don't know why, but that's kind of the, the picture I get of Israel responding to Moses. Still, just this, this sheer look and tone of utter disbelief. Still, be still. I mean, that's the last thing that they wanted to do right now. God, surely we must be able to do something. I mean, surely we could rally the troops, like send the women and children to the back, call the young men, get their swords, put them at the front, let's prepare for battle. At the very least, let's do that. I mean, maybe we could build a bridge. What about a raft? Let's build a giant raft. Let's just do something, anything rather than nothing. And yet Moses says, no, there's going to be no battle, no bridges, there's no rafts. Just be still because today you will see the deliverance of Yahweh. Interestingly, other translations take that word be still and translate it be silent. And it literally means to take no action at a request, to, to almost make yourself deaf against all observable evidence. Like Israel is staring down the chariots of Pharaoh, approaching them with murderous threat and against all observable evidence in a moment of desperate need God is calling Israel to faith to silence to stillness to calm to trust God is saying to them you don't need to do anything Israel I've got this I've got this remember the promise that I made I will deliver you I will bring you into the land fear not I will fight for you you wonder how often we tend to fall into the same patterns as Israel in our own faith and, and even in our everyday lives. 
And when it comes to both our salvation and just our choices and the way that we live, you know, God says to us, you don't need to do anything. I've done it all. And we're like, yeah, yeah, God, but, but have you seen my insert, your you know, list of good works? Yeah, yeah God, have you seen the things that I've been doing? Have, have you seen how many times I've read my Bible? Have you seen my service? And we, God says to us, I've got it. Trust me. And you're like, yeah, yeah, God, I'll pray about it. But then what I'm really going to do is just take matters into my own hands. Verse 13, Moses says, stand firm because you will see the deliverance of the Lord. And literally that word deliverance or salvation as it's translated is the Hebrew word Yeshua. You will see the Yeshua of Yahweh, the salvation of God. That's how it always works with God. We come by faith. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to your cross I cling. Stillness, silence. Well, the third and final puzzling command that God gives his people is found in verse 15. And he says to them, move on. Have a look at what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, let me see if I can find this verse here for you guys. I'm all out of verses. I'm sorry. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to what? To move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide the waters, literally separate the waters in two so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Now, there is probably only a few very rare moments where God says, now is not the time to pray. It's always the time to pray. Praying is always the best thing to do. But here, God says to Moses, stop, don't, don't call a prayer meeting. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to move. And if you're Moses at that point, you're thinking, move where, God? Where do you want us to move? There's Pihahiroth, there's Migdal, there's the, the sea behind us. There's Where? Where shall we move? The only direction we have to go is directly into the ocean. And then we'll drown. What about the camels? What about the sheep? What about Auntie Anna? She can't swim. Like, where do you want us to move, God? And God says to Moses, Moses, stretch out your hand and divide the waters. Separate them in two. Now there is, I don't know if you, like, you've been thinking about the, the, the second point and the third point. There is just this fascinating contrast here between stillness and silence and then movement on the other hand. And yet both of those things are acts of faith on Israel's part. I wonder how often you find yourself saying, ah, I'm just going to pray about that. I'll pray about it. And you pray about it. And you pray about it. You pray, God, give me an open door. Give me an open door. Give me an open door. God, show me the way. God, give me guidance. God, help me decide. God, give me an opportunity. And there comes a point when prayer needs to meet action. And we tarry for too long. We wait for too long. We pray for too long. And God says, enough. That's not faith anymore. It's time to do something. It's time to act. And that is exactly, to Israel's credit, what they do. We know the story, famously, in, in all of the movies that have been made about it. Moses stretches out his hand, his staff, and the, with a beautiful combination of both the natural east wind that God says, sends and the miraculous power of God, the waters separate, dividing with walls on their right and walls on their left. Israel walks through on dry ground, 
a staggering, momentous miracle of God. And then comes Pharaoh and his chariots and armies pursuing Israel into the Red Sea. And as Israel has completed its journey, God says to Moses, now stretch out your hand again. And the waters close, swallowing Pharaoh and his chariots and his armies in the final act of destruction and judgment upon Pharaoh. And then this is the summary at the end of the passage. This is what it says that happened. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. It's pretty brutal, pretty graphic. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. See, Israel had moved from being afraid of Pharaoh and fearing death to the right kind of fear, fearing the Lord. They'd moved from fear to faith and trust. You know, as we read this section of the scriptures, uh, Exodus is a parable, a paradigm of salvation. Isaiah will prophesy to the exiles as they're exiled, be it the the Assyrian exiles or the Babylonian exiles, uh, the the exilic prophets will declare of Israel's return to the promised land using the language of the Exodus, that God will rescue them. Now we we see um, that Luke, he takes the language of the new Exodus and applies it to the ministry of Jesus. We saw last week that um, Jesus is the new Passover lamb. This is how God saves. Exodus is our paradigm. You see, we too, like Israel, are trapped. We are caught between slavery to our sinful nature and slavery to the world and the consequences of our sin in death. There is no way out. We can't fix it. God literally brings us to the end of ourselves, the cul-de-sac of our self-sufficiency. And then he shows us his sufficiency by sending Jesus, the deliverer, our salvation. And we, like Israel, are not saved on the purity of our faith, but on the object of it. And is that not a relief? You see, if Israel was saved on the purity of their faith, man, they would have died on the other side of the Red Sea, grumbling, complaining, lacking faith, distrust. And yet God rescues out of his grace, his mercy, his saving initiative. You know, this, um, this pandemic that we find ourselves in has brought some of you to the end of yourself. You've realized that you are in desperate need. And perhaps this pandemic has caused you to question the purpose of your life, why you exist, um, your pursuit of career. Uh, it's caused you to question meaning and significance really deep ways. Perhaps you, like Israel, feel trapped and I don't mean trapped because you're in lockdown and in isolation and can't see people. I mean, you, 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 your physical, physical experience in this moment is mirroring an existential psychological crisis that you're experiencing. You realize that you're a slave, that you are trapped by this world, that you are a slave to yourself, you're a slave to the opinions of other people, you're a slave to junk food, you're a slave to social media, you're a slave to online shopping, you are a slave. And you've realized, perhaps for the first time, that your attempts at self-improvement, at wellness and self-care have done nothing but make the problem worse because they're focused on you. And you've begun to realize 
that there is a spiritual dimension to you that you've been ignoring and you need someone or something outside of yourself to rescue you. You need a saviour. And if that's you, I want to say to you that God has promised that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus, he will save, he will rescue. Doesn't mean life is sweet. Israel certainly had problems on the other side of the Red Sea. But it does mean that he rescues us. You know, just like Israel was called to demonstrate their faith by taking a step into the Red Sea, I want to encourage those of you today who are watching, who want to make a step of faith towards belief in Jesus, to make that step real by clicking the button in the chat here that says, I raise my hand, I want to decide to follow Jesus today and begin a conversation with one of our team. We would love to help you with that. Israel is a paradigm. Sorry, Exodus is a paradigm of our salvation. And we, those of you who love and follow Jesus, we live between Egypt and the promised land. We live between this age and the age to come. We live between the old master and the new. And the temptation for us, particularly in this season, is not to live by faith, but to live by sight. To do only what our eyes tell us to do. To see death or slavery and, and when it's hard, to simply give up or to take matters into our own hands. You know, often it's really hard to see what God's doing. What is God doing? I don't really know what God is doing in this pandemic. I don't really know what God is doing in this lockdown. But I can trust that he has a plan. I may not have the perspective. I may not have the foresight. I may not have the prophetic vision of what God is doing. But I can trust that he has a plan and he knows what he's doing. And his plan is always for our good and for his glory. My prayer hope is that that encourages you, Anchor Church. We love you. Bless you. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you've rescued us. We desperately need rescuing. We want to confess that this morning. We need you. We thank you that you do for us the very thing that we cannot do for ourselves. You reach down. You rescue us from our slavery, from our idolatry, and from our sin. And for that... We worship you and thank you in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, amen. Bless you, church.